Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Man Foolish and Fallen from Psalm 53. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, and that not only is it true, but that it it teaches us about the character of a holy and a just and a perfect God who has sent forth the Son of God and the Son of Man to pay the penalty that we justly deserve. And so, Lord, as we look at this text, I I pray earnestly that, that this message would land on the good soil and that it would take fruit and it would bear much fruit for your honor and your glory, that it would not fall on the rocky soil, but that it would land on the good soil, that you would take this word and you would use it in our lives to not only help us, if we're not saved, to uh, to, to rightly know the Lord and to know the, sin, the cosmic treason that we have committed against God, but also as Christians, we have a great need to see ourselves rightly in the light of the cross and the resurrection of Christ to show us our ongoing need of your grace and the help that you provide through the grace of God and by the ministry of your spirit. So Lord, take this word. Use your word as you do. Thank you that it will not return without void, that you will use it and you will do with it as you will. So Lord, we thank you for this time now to open your word and pray Lord, that uh, we would all be equipped more to deal uh, rightly and biblically with our sin, whether we're saved or not. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 52. Excuse me. Go ahead and open them to Psalm 53. Psalm 53. And the title of our study today is Man Foolish and fallen. Psalm 53 says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who Eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. They, there they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. In English, we use exclamation points to give emphasis to a thought or to a feeling. Not having the grammatical tools of later languages, Hebrew calls special attention to an idea 
by means of repetition. A good example is the seraphim who worship in the presence of God in Isaiah 6.3, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This rare threefold repetition indicates uh, gives indication is, is that God is not only holy, he is preeminently holy. It asserts that above all else that we know about God, we need to realize how holy God is. And now Psalm 53 presents a similar emphasis by repeating Psalm 14 word for word. The two psalms vary only uh, in minor details, along with a change in verse 5 of Psalm 53, a portion of this psalm is repeated again by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 10 through, thir- uh, through 12. Romans 3, 10 through 12. And this repetition highlights the importance of the topic, the foolish and the fallen condition of man. David laments, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good in Psalm 53, verse 1. And with these words, Psalm 53, along with Psalm 14 and Romans 3, it teaches the truth about mankind that the Bible considers essential for us to know. This very negative doctrine of man and sin has the positive purpose that is seen in the longing of Psalm 53, verse 6, which says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Now, Psalm 53, it addresses the folly of atheism when it says the fool says in his heart there is no god to live in this world to observe its order to splendor and then conclude that god does not exist is simply to declare oneself a fool this is not to say that the atheist is lacks knowledge or smarts or intelligence in this sense of lacking proper mental faculties experience shows that many vocal atheists are intellectuals it said, according to Marvin Tate, fools are the persons who deliberately choose stubborn and pernicious behavior. This is why the psalm notes that the fool says in his heart, since folly involves more than bare intellect, it also involves the affections and the will. In its absolute sense, observed Dutch theologian Herman Bavnik, as a denial of an absolute power, atheism is well nigh unthinkable. And this is why the atheist who denies God invariably worships something else in the place of what he desires. Babnik wrote, denying the true God, man at the same time fashions a false God. Richard Dawkins, one of today's most vocal atheists, illustrates this tendency. Denying the possibility of God, Dawkins instead affirms his belief in space aliens who are godlike in ways that exceed anything a theologian could ever imagine. Supposed atheists such as Dawkins show that our experience demands some deity. The only question is who and what we will worship as God. Now, Scripture most clearly addresses man's denial and the Apostles Paul uh, of God and the important teaching that he gives in Romans chapter 1. Paul's purpose there was to show how the entire human race is condemned for sin, including those who claim to have no knowledge of God. And at the same time, Paul shows why Psalm 53 is correct in describing the one who says that there, that there is no God as a fool. And according to Paul, the atheist is not merely the mistaken person, but a fool because he knows there is a God and yet chooses to believe and to act as if there is none. And remember, we're talking about the God who makes all things, who upholds all things by the word of his power. And yet the, the atheist, the fool, says there is no God. And by the way, 
The Lord also is the one who upholds all the cosmos and our very lives and gives us breath. So we might summarize Paul's teaching on the denial of God with three questions. The first question is how all people know that God exists. Paul answers that God has devised creation so as to give an unavoidable testimony to the being and the power of God. According to Paul, God's eternal power and divine nature in Romans 1.20 are unavoidably revealed to everyone. And far from creation presenting an obscure or even hidden testimony to God, nature plainly points to its creator. Paul says this in Romans 1.19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God's being and power have been clearly perceived, Paul insists, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made in Romans 1.20. James Boyce comments that the revelation of God in nature is not hidden so that only a highly skilled scientist may find it. It is open and manifest to everyone. A child can see it. There is enough evidence of God in a snowflake, a fingerprint, a flower, a drop of water to lead any honest member of the human race to believe in God and worship him. Every single object, he says, in the world shouts God to humanity. And the second question asks why there are purported, purported atheists if everyone by necessity knows about God. Paul's answer shows the condemnation of all those who do not believe. People deny God, he tells us, because they're, by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth about him in Romans 1.18. Atheists rebel against the truth they know, bending their minds and their wills to deny the proof of God that is ever before them. They do this because they hate God, and they hate the idea of submitting to his lordship. They hate God's sovereignty because they wish to be little kings and little queens. They hate God's holiness because they're not holy. They even hate God's love and grace because they're hateful and they're ungracious. And third, what do atheists worship if not God? Paul's answer is that unbelieving man inevitably worships idols in the place of God. Romans 1, 21 through 25 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so to know God as we all do and worship something else as God, especially something that is man-made or otherwise limited in its being and power, is the very heart of folly. And verse 1 of Psalm 53, 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The ancient world possessed very few formal atheists, those who attempted to deny the existence of God. But David's statements about the fool who denies God more broadly entails what might be called practical atheism. These are the people who would never think to deny the existence of God intellectually, but at the same time allow no place for God in their personal lives. The practical atheist observes Michael Wilcock willfully organizes his life without reference to God. According to J.J. Stuart Perone, the fool is not the philosophical atheist with his arguments, but the man who, by the practice of wickedness, so stifles and corrupts within that he virtually acknowledges no God. And the effect of this practical atheism are so serious that David explains that it has ruined the entire human race. This is why David links the folly of unbelief to man's fall into depravity, saying of practical atheists, they are corrupt and doing abominable iniquity in verse 1 of Psalm 51. And in answer to one so foolish as to dismiss God, David pictures God as stooping to observe the conduct of his creatures. 
God looks down from heaven on the children of man, he says, to see if there's any who understand, if any seek after God in Psalm 53, 2. And we're reminded of God's coming down to observe the folly of man and building the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11:5, as well as God's looking down on the wickedness of our race before his judgment in the great flood. And what does God see when he looked down on mankind from heaven? The Bible says that God sees a humanity that is utterly corrupt and utterly rebellious. David's first thought about this is that mankind has fallen away in Psalm 53, 5, or 53, 3, excuse me. And the Hebrew word here means to deviate or to be disloyal. God finds that his creatures have not obeyed him, but have turned to their own ways. The second verb, the Hebrew word alak, it refers to milk that is spoiled or some other food that has become rotten to smell. David's statement about humanity's rottenness echoed throughout the Bible is rejected by people today. The view of secular humanists is that man is not depraved but is good. And to the extent that we might speak of sin, we refer only to surface level imperfections or perhaps to our brokenness and somehow we might be improved. And yet Psalm 53, along with Psalm 14 and Romans 13, 12, refutes the idea saying that together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In fact, the theological liberals seek to uphold their doctrine of human goodness by turning the tables on the Bible, deeming it wayward and corrupt and denying the authority of God's word. And not only liberals, but also many Bible-believing evangelicals denying Psalm 53's teaching on mankind and sin. According to Armenian theology, man and sin is, is only partially depraved, to be sure. Fallen is, is morally weak and sick. Sinners are guilty and subject to God's judgment, but their condition is not so bad that they do not possess the ability to perform and believe the gospel so as to be saved. And yet a third view of mankind taught by Psalm 53 and by Reformed theology is the doctrine of total depravity. This teaching does not deny that men and women were created good, bearing the image of God. The, the doctrine of total depravity does not teach that people are worthless. Indeed, the value of every human soul def defines the tragedy expressed by total depravity. The point of total depravity is to teach that man's corruption is so pervasive that there is no part, no function that is not fatally corrupted by sin. Loran Botner explains that total depravity teaches that since fallen man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles and that he is wholly unable to love God or anything or do anything meriting salvation. And by considering David's description of what God sees when he looks down on man, echoed by Paul's teaching in Romans 3, 10 through 18, we can see how scripture speaks of the total depravity of mankind. In fact, David unfolds our fallen condition in three important statements, beginning with man's unrighteousness before God. He speaks to the problem, saying they have all fallen away in verse 3. Paul states this truth even more emphatically, none is righteous, no, not one, in Romans 3.10. Now, righteousness is a legal term. It notes our standing before the justice of God. According to Scripture, righteousness is attained by obeying God's law perfectly. And yet Paul says in, in Romans 2.13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The problem is that every single one, one of us has done exactly the opposite. 
We have all broken God's law daily in thought and word and deed, as any sober consideration of the Ten Commandments will show. And when Paul declares that none is righteous, he speaks of man's condemnation before the law so that the curse of God's wrath lies on us. Man's problem in sin does not, be, uh, does not end with our legal guilt. It extends second to man's morally corrupt nature. In verse 3, David adds, Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, a cursory inventory of man's nature confirms its description. Paul starts with our speech. The throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness in Romans 3, 13-14. Quoting Psalm 5, 10, and Psalm 140, Paul points out the filth and the venom that spew from their mouths. We are such masters of falseness and malice that Christians who have learned to speak the truth in love have encountered a high realm of sanctification. And Paul proceeds to our habitual discord, Romans 3, 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood and in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Man's violent nature is registered in the newspaper and on television and on radio every single day, as well as on the internet now. And unable to live in harmony, we become easily anger, angry and even hateful with one another. If we can even get away, away with it, we'll employ violence. One couple reported their experience at a marriage seminar. A thousand Christian couples sat tensely at their tables as a conference leader asked each of them to look across the table into the eyes of the man or woman they had fallen in love with and married. They were then to say these words, You are not my enemy. My friends later, these friends that were there reported, you could have cut the air with a knife. As husbands and wives faced the tendency of hostility and hatred, even within the most intimate of all relationships. Paul sums up our corruption saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes in Romans 3.18. And here again, man is the fool telling his heart that, that God can be ignored and even despised. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls and multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. We admit that men and women are mortally corrupt, but just how depraved are we? The Bible answers that our depravity is so total, so comprehensive, that apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, Fallen man is not merely sick or weak or broken, but dead in their trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. This is David's point in showing what God sees in looking on man. In Paul's word, no one understands, no one seeks for God. In Romans 3.11, man's total depravity results in radical spiritual inability. Now imagine owning a broken radio station that lacks the ability to receive signals on certain frequencies. The signals are being sent, but you're unable to receive them. The simple illustration communicates a profound truth about our spiritual condition respective to divine revelation. Paul states this inability clearly in 1 Corinthians 2.14, when he says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus echoes this teaching, clarifying that mankind's inability is spiritual and moral rather than cognitive. It is not that the gospel is too hard to understand, but that as Jesus said, you cannot bear to hear my word in John 8, 43. 
It is because of fallen man's spiritual enmity to God that we require sovereign grace for our salvation, as Jesus taught in John 3.3. Unless one is born again, we shall not see the kingdom of God. And now David makes a final vital truth about depravity. Man's folly and fallen state are not only total, they're universal. They have fallen away, he laments in Psalm 53.3. In Psalm 51.5, David traced his own uh, depravity back to the moment of his conception with his mother's womb. And the reason for this universal depravity is a fall of our race in the first sin of Adam, our covenant head before God, so that Paul explains one trespass led to condemnation for all men in Romans 5.18. In David's terms, because of Adam's fall, every human being, totally uh, human being, foolishly lives as a practical atheist, thinking in our hearts that there were no God. Charles Spurgeon says, "Humanity fallen and debased is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, a dunghill without a jewel, a hell without a bottom." How great then is our need for the saving grace of God that can come from God Himself, which is the grace note which David strikes with the, the his conclusion to this wonderful psalm. And as David considers man's great need for salvation, he marvels at the destructiveness of the morally corrupt sinner. In verse 4, he says of Psalm 53, Have those whose, uh, who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. David laments how the ungodly are committed to doing harm to the people of God, eating them up, as it were, as they eat their daily bread. David's concern is not just for the victimization of the weak and the vulnerable, but also for the tragic folly of people in such a dog-eat-dog rebellion against God. What ignorance is revealed when foolish people prey on God's people when instead they might turn to God in prayer for salvation? And it's not as though unbelieving men and women calmly enjoy the rebellion against God. Instead, David adds, there they are in great terror where there is no terror in Psalm 53, verse 5. There, this is a statement pointing out the existential insecurity of those who refuse to fear God. As a result, fear everything else. H.C. Leipold writes, driven by a, a guilty conscience and perhaps their own superstitions, they have experienced great and unspeakable terror. We see men and women all around us overcome with anxiety and the mere rumor of rising gas prices, a failing stock market, or temporary shortages at the supermarket. And on and on we could go. Leviticus 26.36 describes the fear of the ungodly in vivid terms, saying, The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. David notes that those who assail God's people are especially prey to uneasiness and for good reason. Psalm 53, 5 says, For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to open shame, for God has rejected them. It is possible that David wrote these words about his rebellious son Absalom. At the very least, that wayward prince illustrates the principle. Absalom was a boastful and successful coup against his father. But as soon as events started to turn against him, Absalom felt the fiery breath of God's wrath on his neck, and his rebellion fell in folly. Under pressure, Absalom revealed the instability of a prayerless, godless life with the result that the bones of his defeated soldiers littered the battlefield in 2 Samuel 17-18. What a tragedy Absalom's life was when, through faith and prayer, he might have had God's help. This is the difference between God's people and those who reject God. 
Believers in Christ are sinners like everybody else, but through prayer we are delivered from fear and dismay. Paul promises that when we call on him, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus in Philippians 4, 7. Another candidate for David's dismay is Nabal, Abigail's embittered husband, who was slain by God after his refusal to render aid to David. Nabal is the Hebrew word for fool, and so that David literally opens his psalm by writing, Nabal says in his heart there is no God in Psalm 53.1. This stingy man showed his practical atheism by refusing to deal generously with David. Godless Nabal lived a life of needless suspicion and violent corruption. He was so opposed to God that the report of his wife's wise and charitable dealings with David caused him to die frustration-induced heart attack. Absalom and Nabal do not record isolated example or not isolated examples, since all mankind is gripped by the misery of depravity chronicled in this psalm. This negative point of view of humanity serves David's positive agenda by leading him to long for salvation from God. In verse 6 he says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And knowing the depravity of man, David now looks only to God for salvation that is entirely of the sovereign grace of God. Salvation for Israel will have to come out of Zion, that is, out of God's dwelling place. And David places all of his hopes in the day when God restores the fortunes of his people. For only then will Israel be glad, according to verse 6. And that glad day that David prophecies arrived with the coming of Jesus Christ. The temple on Mount Zion with the sacrifices for sin taught God's people to look for a Savior whose substitutionary death would cleanse us from our sin. John the Baptist saw the day of Jesus coming and he cried aloud to announce the salvation for which David longed in John 1.29, which says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By trusting in Jesus Christ, totally depraved sinners may be washed clean and renewed to spiritual life, experiencing glad, the gladness of God's restoring mercy. David shows the importance of a biblically sober assessment of man's great problem in sin. It is only those who have renounced all hope in, the, in sinful human flesh and who look solely to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is first by agreeing with Paul that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, in Romans 3.23, that we rejoice in the good news that follows. We may be justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God wounds us that, we may, that he may heal us. God slays us by his word that, we may, that he may raise us up to eternal life in Christ. The hymn writer Augustus Toplady understood the implications of his total depravity. when he And like David, he pleaded for God to save him. And so he's saying, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Have you today called on God to save you by his mercy alone, receiving salvation as a free gift of God through Jesus Christ? If not, perhaps the reason is, is that you are too proud to admit the truth about yourself, the truth given in Psalm 53. What folly this is when God's testimony about our sin is so clearly taught and defined. What a tragedy you are, David laments, living foolishly in such darkness and fear when you might call on God and find salvation through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus taught a parable that would have made David's lamenting heart glad. He told of two men who went into the temple on Mount Zion to pray. One of them trusted in his outward works, foolishly trying to cover up his depravity with petty religious deeds. And despite his righteousness before men, Jesus said this Pharisee was condemned by God. The other man was a notorious sinner who took the message of Psalm 53 to heart. Refusing to lift his head in God's presence, he knelt and beat his breast, crying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, in Luke 18.13. That sinner calling on God for grace was looking to the sacrifice offered in the temple, and through them trusting in Christ's atoning death for his salvation. If you will do the same today, then God will look down on you and declare what Jesus said of the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, as Luke 18.14 says. It is out of God's positive, loving desire to grant salvation to us that his word teaches the depressing, negative doctrine of total depravity. The same Bible declares that the Savior for whom David Long has come through the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. If you will look to the cross to be cleansed of sin and trust in his righteous obedience in the place of your waywardness and failure, then you will have replaced folly with understanding, receiving uh, through faith alone, the righteousness of God that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. This is good news for us. We are living in a time when there are many supposed options, many religions offering you different ways, different means to be saved, different philosophies. But behind these things are a way of life that is contrary to the way of life given in the word. That's why Psalm 1 is so vital because it tells us to not sit in the council of, of sinners. That means that we're not to be held captive, as Paul says in Colossians 2.8, by worldly philosophies. Instead, 2 Corinthians 10.5 exhorts us that we are to destroy arguments that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. And Jude 3, to contend for the truth once for all delivered to the saints. And so as we even talk about sin, we also need to talk about the grace of God, as we have. You see that if you're a Christian, the good news is, is this is the formal life that you were dominated by. You were enslaved to your sin. But God, Ephesians 2 says, God has made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. If you are in Christ, if you are adopted, if you're justified, Romans 8.1 declares to you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet today, if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, if there is no evidence that God has cleaned the cup, that he has brought you from death to life, I urge you, I plead with you to repent and to believe and put your trust in Christ as Acts 16.31 and Romans 10.9-17 tell you. There is good news and yet, even for the Christian, Paul says in Ephesians 1, which is actually from verse 3 to the end of, the, end of that chapter, it's one long sentence in the Greek, and that the grace of God abounds, it super abounds towards you as a Christian. You see, we have, as Charles Spurgeon said, not only a great need of Christ, but a great Christ for our need. And that need goes so deep. People today want to analyze the human behavior. They want to seek to plumb the depths, but there are no depths. The depths are our sin. 
They want to discover, you know, humanity's personality and traits and all those things. There's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. But in terms of finding out how bad we are morally, how poor we are ethically, how needy we are spiritually, there's only one answer for that, and the Bible describes it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. That means that no matter how you've sinned, whether that's morally or ethically or sexually, you are a sinner. And you are in need of the Savior. This is why Jesus came under the sentence of death, Matthew 1.21 says. This is why Luke 19.10 tells us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This is why 1 Corinthians 15.1-8 so clearly tells us that that Jesus Christ came and he died and he rose and he appeared to many witnesses and he ascended to the right hand of God. And this is why Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8 tells us that we're to eagerly long for the day, that day when Christ will return. As Christians, we have hope. And that means as as Romans 8.31-39 through show us that we are held secure by God's mighty, powerful hand. And that is good news. But in this world, we're going we're gonna to sin. We're not yet totally like our Lord. We have remaining and dwelling sin. That is why 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he goes on, and John does in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, telling us that we, if we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, it's not by our own righteousness that we are held secure. Both Martin Luther and John Calvin said that this doctrine of justification, the righteousness of God in Christ, is a very hinge upon which the Christian faith relies on. And that is true. Today, if you are a child of God, you are as forgiven by God as you can possibly be. There is nothing else that you can do. There is no performance that you can perform. There is no magical incantation that you can do that can make you any more loved by God or any less in need of His grace ongoing in your life. That is how great, that is how amazing, that is how deep, that is how wondrous. As you you look at the gospel and you see it shine in its multifaceted splendor and glory, that is how great our God is and that is how great and how deep and how wide and how rich and how wonderful the grace of God in Christ is. What a God that we serve. And the only response to that is to give thanks to God. To him be the honor and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that you tell us the truth about ourselves. In a world that is declining in sin, morally, 
ethically, sexually, we thank you that your word is true and that you show us and that you tell us the truth about our condition. You do not, you do not hide the truth from us. You tell us plainly the truth about our sin. And you also tell us plainly about our need of your grace. And so, Lord, we are so thankful that you have spoken in your word and that you tell us clearly and in plain words about our sin and about ourselves and about our need for you. And so, Lord, I pray for those that might not yet know you, that you might open their eyes to believe and that they might put their hope and trust and confidence in the righteousness of God. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would not be apathetic to carry forth this news, this glad tidings of great joy in Christ alone, that alone can set the captives free. Lord, may we carry it forth with boldness and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.